So yes, in this episode, I have Dr. Mike Isratel on. He is a professor in exercise science at Temple University, has a PhD in sports physiology, and he is also a competitive bodybuilder, powerlifter, and jiu-jitsu grappler. He's also a coach and consultant in Renaissance periodization, and as he puts it, what he does best is take human beings and make them great athletes. It's been an interesting conversation in many regards. First of all, I kind of prepared to have a pretty rounded conversation involving training, nutrition, diet fads, and all of that stuff. But we actually ended up spending a good chunk of time on training principles, and in particular, the importance of deloads and proper management of your training intensity for the best long-term progress. Specifically, we delved into why taking pre-planned deloads and lighter phases in your training might very well be what will save you from getting hurt in the gym and earn you months or even years worth of progress, and why simple auto-regulation within your sessions might not cut it in the long term. So if you're new to the topic of deloads and training periodization, this might be an eye-opening discussion. We also covered the topic of training frequency and how much may be too much there, and yes, even with equated volume. We actually also talked about how your maximum recoverable volume might be completely different than someone else's, and how your nutrition should be periodized alongside with your training. I really enjoyed this conversation and I really hope you will too. Again, as always, look for the timestamps to navigate between the topics we addressed. And without further ado, let's go to my interview with Dr. Mike Isratel. You are a coach, you are a competitor yourself and, and you're a professor. Which one would you say is that aspect of your making a living that you take most pleasure out of? You know, I seem to need them in a balance. Right. right. So that when I get one in excess and the other is not enough, then it starts to become that uh, I start missing one of them. Um, no. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think, there's a, I think there's a time and a place for all of them. I can't say I really like one of them more than the other. I will tell you this, you know, coaching other people is a little more nerve wracking than coaching or training yourself because you can control everything yourself and it's on you. But at some point when you're coaching other people, you can only sort of communicate to them your input and then it's on them. And so it's a little nerve wracking to kind of have to watch your athletes and see how well they do. So I actually get much less nervous for my own competitions than I do for other people's. Um, and as a professor, you know, it's really cool to be up in front of people and really uh, teach some stuff. And I think my role as an educator is expanding a lot lately to where I'm a lot more involved in education over the internet, such as this. And I think I reach a lot more people digitally nowadays than I do in person. I mean, I'm an in-person professor at a, at a big school, but um, a lot of the people that really seem to want to learn the most from me are all over the world and sort of aggregate online. Uh, so I, I think I would actually add that in is something I'm uh, pretty passionate about is uh, teaching in, in this kind of style where a lot of people get access to it instead of just the people that are physically present for my course. I hope that right. was a decent answer. Absolutely. And, and actually, that, that just reminded me that I think whenever you get into something, uh, there are things that come your way that you didn't necessarily sign up for in the beginning. Have there and and it doesn't necessarily have to be unpleasant, but have there been anything that really surprised you getting into this space that you really didn't expect in the beginning? No, you know nowadays I'm getting pretty popular, and I never expected that. Uh, I don't know what to really make of it. Um, the uh, the idea that people can be fans of mine is interesting to me. Um, I've known myself my whole life, so, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a, that's a very surprising thing to have to deal with this tiny sort of modicum of celebrity. Um, and that's sort of incrementally becoming more and more reality where people I've been seen at airports and people are like, are you Dr. Mike Isertel? And I'm like, no, of course not. That guy's a piece of shit. I've never seen <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a trip, and I'm just trying to. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't really. I'm not into the fame thing much. I don't really get much out of it. I think there's 
all kinds of people have all kinds of really great contributions. And I don't really think that I know that much more than a lot of other people. And uh, I've met people on, uh, on forums uh, that know a shitload and can, can give me a run for my money. And nobody knows who the hell they are. They're just, you know, avatars or something. So I just try to do my best and kind of present views I think are correct. I try to live the lifestyle and kind of sort of quote, lead by example, though I don't consider myself a leader, just a contributor. And, uh, you know, if people uh, think that I'm pretty cool or whatever, I think they're cool too. Uh, so it's one of those, like, I've had people meet me and say, oh my God, I'm totally like fanboying right now. And I'm like, man, you know, this ain't shit. Like we're all people, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself like some kind of deity or some shit like that. Like uh, cut up all the mistakes I've made in my intellectual development. Holy shit. I'm just glad that I came up and learned most of what I learned before Facebook as <laughs> not have a chance to embarrass myself thoroughly with all kinds of ridiculous claims. <laughs> but, uh, so, so that, that's been a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, and and uh, just just to close up on this dissecting your your daily living kind of thing, but um, what what do you think is like your general perception, or or how do you think people know you as on the internet? Like everybody kind of has a profile. What do you think is yours, if there is one? Man, I'm not sure. I think uh, you know, I have all sorts of ideas about myself that <laughs> may or may not be true. Uh, on the one hand, it could be very complimentary and this, in fact, not my perception. On the other hand, they could be very kind of uh, uh, have a little bit of like, uh, you know, saying, oh, I'm not such a big deal. Kind of, and in reality, maybe I'm a bigger deal than I say. Uh, I'm not sure. I am not really. I, I don't know in, in entirely how I come off. I have some ideas. I think I, I can tend to come off pedantic every now and again, like, uh, oh, I fucking know everything and here's how you do the right shit. I think a lot of people have described me as intellectually intimidating because I seem to know a lot of shit. And I seem to be very, very skeptical. Someone says something. Um, I hope that's not it. You know, I hope I come off as pretty nice. I don't usually get into drama. I don't yell at people much. I don't do personal insults. Um, I don't get into that stuff on the internet too much. It's actually very rare. So I'm trying to stay away from that. I, you know, people say that I'm controversial every now and again. I, I hope I'm controversial, not just with me being an asshole, you know? Um, so other than that, like, I do have the distinction of being very well-educated and actually being jacked, which is unique. So that's cool. I think some people are like, oh, that guy's a scientist and he's jacked. That's cool. Because, you know, sometimes you get one or the other, but yeah. not so often that it's both. So, yeah, who knows? I, hopefully they're pretty good perceptions. Uh, <laughs> uh, why, this would be like the funniest interview ever made because people post this clip and be like, look at this asshole thinks people like him. This is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we will see. We will see. Um, but I, I actually think I asked Lyle McDonald this question. Let's say you're at a dinner and there is a very vocal guy at the other end of the table who seems to spew out a lot of shit about diet. Like, I don't know. Don't mix carbs and fat and don't eat after 8 p.m. or something like that. What would your reaction be in a situation like that? Mm. I usually don't say anything uh, unless people ask me. Uh, and then I just try to be polite for as long as I can. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those situations where if someone, so for example, they're spewing a lot of stuff and some other friends at the table will look at me and be like, what do you think? I'm like, oh, you know, I think there's some truth to that. And I think there's stuff I'd be able to disagree with a little bit, which is of course a vast understatement and essentially a white lie because they could be entirely wrong. And, uh, you know, because in-person social interactions are difficult to convince people. And uh, you're at a dinner, right? So purpose number one is to have fun, have a good time. People tend to forget that. Uh, if I was at a scientific conference, I'd fucking flay the guy in front of everybody. I'd be like, question, how come you're stupid? Please list the following reasons, right? But at a dinner, fuck, man, I'd just be like, man, you know, you know I have all sorts of opinions, but uh, most of them, you know, would just bore everyone else to teach, right? And people kept... If the guy was like, no, no, tell me what you think, I'd very try to very politely kind of admit what he, where he's right. Um, and then, you know, so for example, uh, eat, you can't eat carbs and fats together or whatever. And so, you know, in some situations, uh, there, there's definitely some truth to that. But I think in, in many situations, I think it's really probably not a big deal. And I think most people can get away with it and, and be very healthy and safe and all that stuff. And, and if he'd like to continue the conversation, if, if that answer satisfies him, and or kind of lets him know that I know a lot, maybe he should shut the fuck up. Uh, that would be great. 
And if he was to continue to press the issue, at that point, my girlfriend probably just kicked me under the table and be like, shut the fuck up. And I'd be like, ah, you know, I just, uh, let's, let's pick this up later, you know? So, but yeah. I, I'm not very confrontational uh, in real life. I, I, I had a, a young streak when I was an undergraduate master student where I would engage it's in hangouts. I would engage people in political discussions. I happen to be a uh, mostly libertarian uh, political thinker in a college environment where you were either liberal or you were considered completely stupid and just morally reprehensible. So I got into a lot of intellectual fights, so to say, social hangouts. The only thing really happened to that is uh, nobody had a good time. Even I didn't have a good time. I felt like I was... I felt like a bully after a while because a lot of the people that had these opinions, they had no idea why they had them. So you start to cross-examine them. They feel very defensive. Um, this policy does this. And you're like, well, that's actually completely false. It does the following three things, none of which you listed. And here are some, you know, uh, some side effects of the policy, which you forgot to mention. As a matter of fact, the entire basis of your belief system is, is fundamentally flawed. Nobody likes to hear shit like that, right? So just thinking with diets a similar way, I don't really do that stuff anymore in, in person. I, I really like Facebook and other platforms for debate because you can number your points and just be very polite the entire time and nobody can see your facial expression. There's no like tone of mockery. So you can be really, really logical and calm. And in confrontations like that, uh, some other people may say this about me, uh, hopefully it's true. I'm usually super polite. Um, a lot of people uh, really confuse what's true and what's scientifically valid with their ego. And I'm not really sure why they do that. I mean, it makes sense. Um, Lyle does that all the time, right? Lyle uh, is phenomenally intelligent, and he's correct about almost everything he says, in my opinion. But sometimes he just gets really offended, seemingly for no reason at all. He you know, starts to call people names. I've seen other people do that. Um, I mean, my other sport that I'm involved in is, is jiu-jitsu. I fight all the time. I don't have anything to prove. And if someone has emotional problems with me, or really hates me as a person, I train at Balance, City Center in Philly. Come on down, we'll fucking sort it out. <laughs> There's no point in doing it over Facebook debate, over nutrient timing. I don't think so. I, I very rarely get personal with those kinds of debates. And I think that's super unproductive because nobody learns anything. So. Yeah. I, th I think this is the benefit of, of being a professional in this field because you get to do it all the time anyway, and then you don't feel the urge to do it in person. So You bet. You know, I think a lot of people who are coming up on learning a lot of shit. Like when you just learn some stuff, you're really passionate about telling everyone that you learned the truth and they're really stupid. When you've been saying the same stuff for years and someone says, well, no, 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 fasting works or you know, uh, I need to do this juice cleanse. You're just like, mm -hmm, okay, you've heard it so many times and you also know you can't convince everyone. The best thing you can be if you wanna convince people is super polite, super respectful, grant them where you think they're correct and just gently try to tell them, maybe you can consider this as well. I think yelling at people and shit like that, it entertains other people that are already on your side, but it doesn't really convince anyone who's not on your side and it probably doesn't do a whole lot to convince the person either. So, you know, that kind of style is hilarious and sometimes I'll read folks who are more combative, I'll read their debates just to get a laugh out of it, but I already agree with them. You know, I'll say if I didn't agree with them, I would just think they're the biggest idiots of all time. That doesn't do them any good. So. There you go. All right, so uh, let's get into some stuff that I guess everybody expects to hear from this interview. And let's uh, start uh, with some training uh, stuff and I'll put for this discussion I'll try to put on put put try to represent people in various camps so first I'll try to be the guy who let's say walks up to you in the gym and asks you like hey Mike um, I just really I, I just want to be as muscular as possible can it be explained in a few simple bullet points um, is, is it is it even possible is there a, a relatively simple recipe for that what would you say yeah, absolutely, there is. Um, to being as muscular as possible means training most or all of the muscles of your body. It means training them in such a way that you're training them as hard as you can train them while still recovering and making the fastest rate of gains. So you have to avoid two, two faults, training much harder than you can recover from and regressing or just not getting the best gains or just not training hard enough, which a lot of people do. Uh, so you have to find your sweet spot of how hard you can train and many more than that would be bad. And you have to try to flirt around with that area a lot. You have to employ progressive overload. So you have to continue to make things more challenging. You have to lift more weight. You have to do more sets over time. 
you have to be consistent in your execution of that. And there are some issues there with frequency. So you have to show up to the gym multiple times a week. It's not going to happen with two or three sessions. And your nutrition has to support the process by a two-phasic approach, which could be more complicated, but the simplest part of it is you go through a phase of training in which you gain both muscle and fat. Then you go through another phase of training where you lose the fat and try to keep the muscle. And But for some maintenance phases in between, which are really just details, you kind of try to repeat the cyclic process, and eventually you end up with a lot of muscle and not much fat at the end of that. I think that's a pretty decent summary. All right. So then uh, I guess it, it begs the question, how much, how much should one train? Yeah. So when we take a mesocycle of training, so we take a four or five week block, we increase volumes and intensities through the weeks to make sure the overload principle is being followed. What happens is we accrue some adaptations, right? We get better every week, every microcycle, but we also accrue some fatigue. So that's the so first thing is if your performance increases every single time you come to the gym, you're probably not overloading enough because you're not fatigued enough to mask that performance. On the other hand, if you're getting worse every time you come to the gym, noticeably worse that you can't lift the same sets and reps and weights, your fatigue levels are so high, you're probably training much more than you can recover, literally by the definition of recovery, which is reestablishing historical past performance. And then you're probably doing way too much. So the answer is within a mesocycle, most of the training sessions should have you training at about the same performance capacity. Earlier in the mesocycle, you should be able to improve on your abilities. But later in the mesocycle, you should be kind of starting to stall out before you deload. So on average, during that time, you should feel just about as good every single session as you did the last session. Now, you don't go to your limits in the first session. You maybe go here and your limit is here, but you come up, 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 up slowly, and then you deload. So the sweet spot for most mesocycle design and conventional hypertrophy is, are you training up to the point where you're pushing your ability to recover? Which means that if you're getting much better through a mesocycle, so for example, you benched 150 kilos for a set of five one week, and the next week you benched 155 kilos for a set of seven, then, man, you probably just didn't accumulate that much fatigue in the first week, and you probably weren't training hard enough. On the other hand, if you benched 150 for five one week, and you benched 150 for one the next week, yeah, you really did way too much, and that's probably not going to do you any good. So the idea is you don't try your hardest in the first week, you go maybe four reps away from failure, that repetitions and reserve method people are talking about now, which I've been using for forever. Maybe two reps or three reps in reserve for the next week, two, one or two reps in reserve, take it to failure in the last week, and then deload. But through that entire time, your performance, basically on a 10-rep calculator or something, should be roughly equivalent. If you are way too energetic in any one of those times, except for the first week, you're probably not training enough. If you are totally smashed you've been training way too much so what i would say is that's how you find what we'd call your maximum recoverable volume your mrv now, right that's the, that's the most you can recover from and, and and still have your abilities now mind you that is you're recovering from that while you're accumulating fatigue because that entire time you're actually accumulating fatigue which means that if you performed x in week one okay you performed the same X in week five before you deload it, we know that your fatigue has gone up quite a bit through that entire time. So how the hell is it that you can perform the same at the fifth week with that much more fatigue? Well, the answer is you gained adaptations. That makes sense? So it's the only way you can repeat that kind of performance is remember, imagine if you didn't get better at all during training. The first week, you're not very fatigued. You're just deloaded. The fifth week, you're fatigued as hell. You'd expect to drop, but you don't. So how do we tell that you're probably getting your best rate of adaptations is if you perform the same in week one as you do in week five. If you perform much better, then you, then you probably could have trained much harder because then when you deload, you get much better in that case. If you perform much worse, then, well, you haven't supplied much of an overload the entire time because you were too fatigued. So that's, in a general sense, how we define maximum recoverable volume. Now, that already takes into account that there's going to be a high rate of adaptation there. However, you might get a little bit more adaptation because of this. If you have a certain amount of energy or a certain amount of uh, resources you're using in your muscle, 
for recovery, which means a return to past performance, you may actually get better results because you're taking away, so you're using all of your resources for recovery. If you trained a little less hard, you would have more resources left over for an actual process of adaptation. Does that make sense? So you're no longer just trying to recover, but you have a little bit more to adapt. Now we know through the various physiological costs of adaptation, like the literal physical cost of muscle building and other things, probably not very high. So it's not like your MRV is going to be 20 sets per body part and your MAV, maximum adaptive volume, is going to be like 10. It's not like that. It's probably more like your MRV is like 20 and your MAV is like 17 or 18 or something. That's my best estimate of reading it. literature, working with athletes, thinking about this a whole lot. So I would say, how do you know that you're training as hard as you can if you bench 150 for three sets of five in the first week and after accumulating a shitload of volume, doing really hard training, getting super fatigued, still being able to bench 150 for five in the last week, right? And if you could do that, you know that, man, you've gotten a whole lot better because you're doing what you used to do, but with all the fatigue in the world slammed on top of it, then you know that you're probably adapting really, really well. But if you hit a PR in your last week, you probably think, man, I hit a PR before I deloaded. Am I really accumulating that much fatigue? And if you answer the question with no, then am I really supplying that much overload? Because remember, anytime we supply overload, you get fatigue. So if I didn't accumulate a lot of fatigue, I probably could have worked harder, right? A good analysis of am I getting better has to occur after deloading, not before. Does that make sense? So if you're better before you deload, eh, man, maybe you don't even really need to deload, and then you're definitely not training hard. Now, on the other hand, if you get worse through the mass cycle, you're training way too hard. You're not recovering, and you're literally preventing yourself from overloading the entire time. So I think that's probably the best general, general, reasonable approach to know that you're doing your best in the gym. Fantastic. And, and, and that brings to my two, two quick questions. One is, uh, is, is the, when, when you know you have to deload, uh, is that based on some kind of benchmark that you're looking for, or is this just simply a predetermined point well so it should be a predetermined point is that you move around through auto regulation uh based on your experiences so when you start training you can deload once every four weeks or five weeks but you may notice that based on how you're training you don't need to deload in the fourth or fifth week maybe you need to deload every six weeks but maybe if you change some lifestyle variables or as your body matures or you try a different training style that you get beat up much earlier and you need to deload earlier. So I would have a pre-programmed deload, but sometimes it's okay to extend it or just take the deload anyway. And the next mesocycle be like, okay, that deload was way too early. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna do a longer cycle this time. How do you know you have to deload? By the definition of recovery. Are you recovered enough to continue to supply an overloading stimulus, the same magnitude of overloading stimulus that you had been, right? That, 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 that is the big question. So. You know, if you normally bench 150 for sets of five on a good day, then, uh, you know, if you, on a fourth week, I mean, you hit, you know, 160 for sets of five or sets of four grinders, I mean, barely there. Hey, you're doing really well. Like you even got a little better, but you weren't trying as hard, right? So we have to remember the repetitions are really, so 150 for five with three reps left in the tank roughly equates to 160 for five with like two rep, uh, one rep in the tank, right? Or just failure. So you think, okay, I'm just about as strong. This is great because I'm holding a ton of fatigue. Obviously, I'm just going to, you know, when I drop the fatigue, it's going to reveal that I've gained a lot of fitness. Okay, this is going really well. You come in next week, you're like, I'm going to do another week. And you hit 165 for two, one, and then zero reps. Okay. Have you recovered? Like by the literal definition, you have not. Now, that could have been like you broke up with your girlfriend that weekend and you had huge fights and she literally beat your ass and you tore both your packs trying to hit her in the face and you had the worst weekend ever and you didn't sleep at all. And maybe, but just in general, on normal training, if you find yourself continuing to try to train for five weeks and every time the fourth week fucks you up and you've got way too much accumulated fatigue, you got to deload on that fifth week. Does that make sense? So how do you know when it's time to deload when you can no longer present an overload? Which is funny that you talk to some people that say they don't deload. And my question to them, like, do you just linearly get better forever? <laughs> like, uh, you know, do you just continue to increase weight and sets and reps for months? I mean, if that's the case, wow, like, I want to know what you're taking. But so I think that but the biggest reason people don't take deloads is because they never really push it. So you have to push it in training. You have to overload enough fatigue to start accumulating. Once fatigue accumulates so much that you cannot overload anymore, that is when the deload occurs.
Yeah, right. Now, now, what would you think of like an auto-regulated deload within sessions? So let's say you you fail to hit your rep target in a certain exercise and you just omit the next sets and then next session you try to hit the PR again. I think there's some really good uh, times and places for that. I think every single program needs to be somewhat auto-regulated. But there is there are types of fatigue, fatigue mostly related to connective tissue healing, nervous system healing some hormonal uh, balancing. Those types of fatigue literally do not come down within a microcycle. They have to take you know, a week or longer to break down. So the kinds of fatigue that get recovered when you're talking about session to session is uh, glycogen repletion, some neural characteristics. But if you never deload, especially never take some weight off the bar, you continue to stress the muscles and tendons in very similar force parameters, and then you'll get injured sooner or later. So there's absolutely a time for auto-regulation so that if your plan, if you're, for example, accumulating too much more fatigue than you thought you would, you can take a, a planned light, you know, unplanned light day, they basically come in, hit your first set. Well, I'm fucked. Easy on the second set, leave before you go to the third. The next week you can hit it again. But that's not a sustainable strategy for training without deloads. That's just something you do when your strategy hasn't worked out and you need to make sure you hit your numbers. It's something to do as a, as a kind of a, a backstop. But your deload should still be planned to occur regularly because deloading does more recovery than anything you could do with just a light lift. Does that make sense? Like a whole week of lighter lifting is needed every now and again. There are bigger things than deloads. There are active rests. Right, an active rest phase is sometimes two weeks long. It occurs at the end of a meat prep cycle or at the end of a year. Those are designed to heal all, almost everything and build up your ability to train for another year. You know, so for example, if you have kind of a nagging pain in your knee, if you take a light session, just one, and then you come back and hit it hard again, but the pain gets better, but it doesn't go away. And then after the hard session, it's back. If you do a deload, the pain almost goes away. And for the first couple of weeks of training after, you're doing really well. But then like week three and four, just when you need to be hitting PRs is when it starts to hurt again and you start having to take light days again, it sucks. But an active rest days of two weeks long may complete, may allow your knee to be so unbothered by overload for that long, such easy training for two weeks, that it completely heals. And then, you, and then it gives you a year of training. Does that make sense? So um, I think there's definitely times for unplanned auto-regulation, but that has to be part of a planned system. And actually, uh, uh, Dr. Hoffman and I, one of my colleagues, we're writing a recovery book. It's going to be out. We don't know when because we have a shitload of other projects that bumped it to, uh, to later. But um, one of the things we'll be talking about is we have a huge, whole huge chapter about deloading, more or less, about fatigue management. And what we say in there is that auto-regulation strategies have the benefits that pre-planned strategies never will but they also don't have as much reach as pre-planned strategies do. Pre-planned strategies are way too rigid to only use, but they have very big key roles that are indispensable. So when people ask, hey, so do you auto-regulate or do you have pre-planned strategies? The answer is both. <laughs> the answer is both. And every intelligent high-level sport training system has both. I don't know of a single high-level sport training system that which the coach doesn't give the athletes an option to take it easy every now and again. And I don't know a single system where the, the athlete, where the coach doesn't say, hey, athletes, I don't give a shit how you feel. This week, we're more resting than we are lifting. So yeah, pre-planned or, or not pre-planned, the answer is yes. Uh, that, that, that is very interesting. And I'm very curious uh, of when, when that book's going to come out. I, I imagine now a lot of people who are a proponent of, of um, auto-regulation or, or exclusively auto-regulation, uh, will say that, well, if you have a nagging pain, that means that your exercise selection or, or exercise routine was not sustainable to begin with. So that is the problem and not the lack of deloads. But yeah. I think that's a very, I, 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 just, I, I think that's a very shallow response because uh, any high level athlete will tell you that training, period, training hard comes with injuries. There is no way to avoid them. A lot of injuries occur when you're doing nothing wrong. They just happen. My, one of my mentors, Dr. Mike Stone, who's uh, worth 250 peer-reviewed publications in sports science, a, a god, okay, has been coaching everyone or whatever. I asked him once, Doc, when do injuries happen? He says, Mike, you know, you would think they happen when their accumulated fatigue is really high and you tend to get the nagging ones like that. But some of the worst injuries I've ever seen are when people feel great. 
and it's just when they feel great that they can produce enough force to give their body something it's never handled before and it snaps. So folks that say, you know, I, and, and I actually, if you don't mind, I, I, I really want to address this really quickly. There are two potential underlying realities of injury occurrence. One is kind of like you hinted at, there's something wrong with your program and that very may, may well be the case is shit happens. You're overloaded. When you see someone doing front squats, even with great technique, does it look like the safest thing in the world? If you had to bet, are they going to get injured or is someone going to get injured sitting on a couch? Which one would you bet? You don't just sit on a couch and go, oh my God, my quad ripped off. That doesn't happen, right? So even with good technique, exercise, we're throwing ourselves into the fire. We're putting ourselves in harm way. It's called overload for reasons, over the body's ability to normally experience. That is, it, it's like um. Combat, no matter how good a military gets in combat, people die in combat. People get shot at. It doesn't matter how awesome your sniper rifle is or how great your tactics are. The enemy shoots back, and even if you're that much better and you do everything right, you still – every now and again, really bad shit happens, right? So we have to understand that if we get hurt, we have to do our best to figure out what went wrong. To know in the back of our minds that sometimes the answer is nothing if shit happens – and you just have to do your best. You have to recover from the injury and just keep going, right? Because sometimes what ends up happening is that when folks get really carried away with trying to figure out why they got hurt, they turn into uh, paralysis by analysis kind of individuals where they watch like every Kelly Starrett video on loop for forever. And they message Quinn Hennock and say, hey, I think everything's wrong with every part of me and I'm imbalanced and I need 50 trillion hours of mobility because I was built wrong. God decided to just fucking put my legs where my arms were supposed to be because I'm that uncoordinated. And they start to look for reasons and reasons and reasons. And you're like, so, so, so how'd you get hurt? And they're like, well, you know, I was deadlifting. And then like I pulled a muscle in my lower back and I'm fucking welcome to deadlifting, dude. If you're trying hard, that shit happens sometimes. Um, so, you know, yeah, there, there's a good idea to look for injury reasons, and, and, and most of the time, there are good reasons that you could fix, but you can't fix them all. So when people say, oh, it's just something wrong with your program, it might not just be something wrong with your program. You do everything correctly and still get hurt. Okay, mind, mind blown. <laughs> um, and, and, and then, okay, so, so essentially what you're saying, if, if I'm inter interpreting it correctly, is that simply by nature of overloading, if you're doing it enough, that's always another opportunity to get hurt. Absolutely. It's your job to do it best. I will say this. Uh, I'm not being a proponent of just saying three sheets to the winds and let's just fucking train, brother, and who gives a shit, and we'll just tear ourselves up because it's part of training. Because overload is already so injury risky as opposed to not doing anything, it is our duty in the gym as proper, intelligent, scientifically-minded trainers to do as good of technique as we ever have. I'll tell you what I do take a lot of pride in. I love being a professor. I love being a whatever bodybuilder, jiu-jitsu grappler. I love the fact that pretty much nobody can talk shit about my videos of me lifting technique-wise. I'm a fucking stickler. I'm sure you've seen some of them. I don't fucking make mistakes. I just don't. Why? Because they're fucking hard enough as it is, I don't need any other good reason to injure myself. I'm trying to stay as safe as humanly possible. So people are like, yeah, man, like your technique looks almost – I've literally had people say like it almost looks too good. Like what the fuck does that mean? Like I bent rode 315, like what, like 145 kilos for you know four sets of 10, and someone's like, yeah, I mean like you could probably heave a couple more. I'm just like – are you fucking kidding me? Right? Like, so a training is already, I've gotten hurt doing bent rows when I was doing them perfectly. You just pull them up, something goes, that's it. So I want to do as good of a job in the gym with technique as I can. So that there's no additional reason for me to get hurt. That makes sense. And so I'm, I'm not advocating the fact that you should just be like, well, whatever injuries happen, you got to do your absolute best to make sure they don't happen, which means proper technique. Number one, Proper fatigue management, number two, making sure you take dealers and rest and light, rest days and light days. Uh, proper programming. Don't look, oh, I squatted 200 kilos. Next, I'm going to squat 250. Like, okay, you're going to skip 210, 220, 230, right? Dumb shit like that. Uh, you definitely don't want to do that, so proper programming. But after you've taken care of all of those, 
sometimes shit happens. And then it's always up to you after shit happens to look over your plan as diligently as you can, get other intelligent people. You know, Chad Wesley Smith and James Hoffman are my go-to people for that, and Jared Feather, another friend of mine. I ask them after I get hurt, look at my plan. Do I look like I'm fucking doing anything wrong? And they'll say, yeah, I think this is really too much deadlifting, or you should have deloaded here and there, or I saw your technique and it wasn't as good as you usually think it is. But sometimes they say, and I look, and I say, I really did everything as best as I could. And you can't do anything by definition any better than you could, right? So just chalk it up to shit happens, write down when you got hurt. Maybe later you'll figure out you're doing something wrong when you know more. But heal, go back and hit it. You know, I've been hurt benching, squatting, and deadlifting. I don't even know how many times. A ton. I'll still bench, bench squat, and deadlift, and, and almost never get hurt. It's just every now and again. A lot of guys, and you know what? Another really quick thing while I'm ranting, some people will abandon exercises altogether because they got hurt on them a couple of times. And that's not even statistically even any more likely that they got hurt. You know, it just happens to be like, oh, like, I don't do bench press because like, I pulled my pec once. Well, like, how many times have you bench pressed? I got like 10,000. How many times have you pulled your pec once? Wow, holy shit. Like, that's definitely one-to-one, -one, right? So a lot of times when you get hurt in an exercise, yeah, it's good to stay away from it for a while out of it because it's psychological and also so you're not stressing that area and letting it heal. But then you got to ease back in. Um, like, I hurt my knee not even squatting. But fucking, I don't even know how I hurt my knee. Probably jujitsu or something. It's just like one of those things that started hurting. I have no idea why. So I did mostly leg presses and lunges for a while and just like, really lightweight Smith machine squats. Then I started going heavier on Smith machine squats. My knees started feeling pretty good. And then eventually I transitioned back to regular high bar squats, which were killing me just before that. And, and now they feel great again. So is it one of those things like, oh, high bar squats, like they're, they're what hurt my knee and I can't do them. No, like I'm back in full force and I'm just going to keep trying. Sometimes the injuries just happen. So we've got to, there's got to be that balance. There's like stupid bro on the one hand, who like swings all the weight around and like gets hurt once a day. And he's like, whatever a sacrifice brother. And then there's like, you know, uh, PT student, uh, you know, first year PT student that weighs, uh, you know, 56 kilos and thinks he's always hurt all the time. And he thinks he's always problem with his programming. And he never actually presents an overload because he's too scared to get hurt. So you gotta be somewhere in the middle there, do your best. And then injuries still happen. And you just have to analyze them. And if it's just shit happens, then you just heal and keep going. Right. So, and and do you think that then for for people who are, who are not like their livelihood is not dependent on this, and and they just want to look great, be fucking strong, be in the gym, but you know they're not competitors. Do you think there are certain besides taking the appropriate deloads and manage fatigue in terms of intensity, frequency, and I guess just general programming of a certain exercise? Is, is, is a good way of doing it to play it as safe as possible while still making good progress, if this question makes any sense? You know, the good news about if you just want to be strong and go to the gym and stuff like that is that if, if you're not serious about strength athletics, you probably won't get strong enough to get hurt much. <laughs> so it's a self-solving problem. Uh, you know, the, the biggest predisposition to getting hurt is technique. So if you have good technique, you're already doing your best. The second predisposition to getting hurt is how strong you are. The stronger you are, the more likely you are to get hurt. I have never seen ever, and I mean ever, a female who's benching like 40 kilos get hurt. <laughs> ever. Have you ever seen a female get hurt benching? I've literally never seen that. She's not strong enough for herself. Like if she was strong enough for herself benching, she could like accidentally slip and fall on ice, put her hands out and break both of her fucking hands off. Well, fuck, man, you must have been really weak, right? Which is not that weak, but benching is just about that much force, right? So how many times have 500-pound bench pressers gotten hurt benching? Every time you bench more than 200 kilos, you're rolling the dice, everyone, right? unless you can usually bench 300 kilos. And then 200 is easy, but as you go to 270, 280, 290, you roll the dice. So very few people get hurt benching 100 kilos almost no one gets hurt benching 50 kilos so if you if you want fitness and to be in great shape and not get hurt number one don't lift very heavy uh stay above five reps that's a good start if you want to be strong you got to go below five reps if you're down again and then technique is what's going to save you and also just make sure to take good fatigue management take heavy and light days and, and if i'll tell you this if there's ever a day in which you feel really sore, tired, or fatigued, just take a fucking light day because you're not like a, an athlete that wants to be the best. Just don't don't push it when you know you shouldn't. And, and here's the thing. I don't have to explain this because everyone knows what the fuck I'm talking about. We all come to the gym and we're like, I, sh I shouldn't do this. And you fucking, your, your training partner looks at you and he's like, 
you're going up to 200 and you're like, yep, <laughs> put your belt on 200 squishes you and you're like, ow, that was stupid. Yeah. Don't do that. If you're an, if you're an athlete, there are going to be times when you have to do that. You got to nut up and do what it takes. If you're recreational, you don't want to get hurt. Don't come back the next day, two days later, come back stronger and ease in. And, and another big thing is warm up, man. I don't even know why I have to say this, but I do warm up for Christ's sake. So, I mean, the amount of stupidity in this in, in, in our in our field is unbelievable. I remember uh, Pavel Tsatsouin. If I knew how to pronounce his name in Russian, I'd probably do a better job. But uh, you know who that is, Pavel? The, uh, no, unfortunately. That's very good that you don't know who that is. He's a guy that wrote like a bunch of strength books, and he's like a Russian dude. He's really skinny. He can deadlift a lot because he has long arms. But he's literally gone on record as saying that warming up is stupid. You shouldn't do it. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good. That's a good. That's, that, an, that's an interesting take. take. Someone asked me, uh, they're like, Doctor Israel, what do you think about Pavel Tsatsouline's stance on like not warming up? And I was like, I fucking lost it. I was like, I think that's what fucking weak people say. Like, I don't know. Like, I squat like what did I squat last? I squatted one. Was it 195? I squatted for four sets of eight slow eccentrics in a high bar squat. And these are full Olympic depth squats or whatever. I don't just fucking walk in and do that. <laughs> yeah. like it, yeah. it takes me like six warm up sets to get to that weight. The first thing I squat is my body weight. After I squat 60 kilos, okay, actually, no, sorry, sorry. I squat 20 kilos first, I squat the bar. Then I squat 60 kilos, then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think a lot of people who are recreational think, I'm recreational. I don't have to warm up. Well, if you don't want to get hurt, warm up. And it can be as easy as this. If you're using 70 kilos on the bench press, do the bar for a set of 15. Stretch your pecs out a little bit. Move around. Do some shoulder rotations. Then do like 50 kilos for a set of five. Good pauses on the chest. Take a little break and then do 70 kilos. But how many people do you see at the gym? who bench 70 kilos for, for reps, show up, put 70 kilos on, and start fucking going. Yeah. yeah. I see a shit all the time. I train at an undergraduate gym, so I, I have all sorts <laughs> of fun looking at people be like, you know, you look at someone else who knows how to lift, you look at the other guy, and you're like, let's find out where this goes. You know, the guy's putting like three plates on the bench without a warm-up. You're like, okay, he might die, but it'd be very entertaining for us to see that, so maybe that's going to happen. <laughs> so, so for people who, who are just training you know, for their own personal amusement and, and all the benefits that come with it, warm up. Practice good technique, and when you're really beat up, take a light day. That'll keep you away from almost all injuries. But when you push it, sometimes you'll get hurt. And then just most injuries are nothing to write home about. Do rehab, recover, and with us, yeah, no time. Right, and um, actually, this this brings to mind. I, I saw your uh, interview with uh, Iraqi Nutrition, and and there you talked about training frequency and. What, in, in your opinion, how does that uh, kind of dovetails into what we just talked about now? Well, so if you want good results, not just okay results, and if you want the best results, you're going to have to take tra training frequency into consideration. Now, from the perspective of sports science, with the total variables that affect hypertrophy and strength outcomes, frequency is one of the lesser ones. Training well, just once a week but with the same equivalent weekly volume as splitting that volume up over four training sessions through the week gives you such similar results that many of the studies that have been done, they don't show a difference. Now there's some difference in effect size, but a lot of times it's not statistically significant. So frequency is not a huge deal, which was funny when the whole squat every day thing came out and you know, there's religious proponents of almost every philosophy. And so when the squat every day thing came out, people were like, you don't understand. Either you squat every day, you're the stupidest person ever. Like, it'll give you these amazing results. They're just so cool. It's so great. It's just so awesome. And you're like, oh, okay. You probably get very similar results training twice a week or three times a week or even once a week. Okay. Now, that being said, most exercises, most movements that are not super technical like the Olympic weightlifting movements, it's probably best to train them between two and four times a week or overloading training between two and four times a week. Can you train them more than that, but not every session is overloading? Yes. That may afford you some more technical practice for movements like bodybuilding movements and stuff. You don't really need technical practice. It's not a big deal. Uh, maybe a waste of your time. Uh, for Olympic weightlifting and things of that nature, you need a lot of technical practice, so you're going to be doing some version uh, of Olympic weightlifting, some kind of derivative lift or the full lift. Man, you could be doing it six days a week or every single session that you come in. But uh, generally speaking, two to four times a week is a real good uh, 
zone for most people to get their best results. I'll put you another way. If someone trains every single muscle group overloaded six times a week, I start to think they could probably get better results if they didn't do that, if they trained less. In most cases, I think that's true. On the other hand, if I see someone that does the bro split, you're familiar with the bro split, yeah, you know, yeah, chest, course, Monday, yeah. back, Tuesday, then, uh, then I know that they're missing out on something. Now, are they missing out on just this world of benefits? No. So I usually don't, you know, when people ask me how to train, if they do a bro split, I usually don't say much about it. I say, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. Now, if they want to compete, if they want to get better and they're stalling, that's the first thing that comes to mind is you train your chest once a week. They're like, yes, yeah, so like twice, try twice a week. Do the same stuff you're doing now, split into two sessions, and you'll find out your recovery is so much better that you could probably do even more work and still recover. So there's definitely something to be said for frequency, two to four times a week for most muscle groups, et cetera. Uh, and there's definitely exceptions to that at the extremes, but on average, that's probably where I'd start with program besides. Right. And so let's say someone is training their chest, um, just because chest is obviously the most important body part in the world. I'm just kidding. But uh, let's say you do 20 sets for your chest a week. Um, now, if you were to distribute that in two or three sessions versus doing it every single day, so three, three sets every day, seven days a week, in terms of hypertrophy and in terms of connective tissue health and fatigue management, how do you think the, the situation would turn out? The situation is, uh, for a short-term hypertrophy would probably be identical. For long-term hypertrophy, I would say I would predict that the high-frequency training would lag behind. And here's why. And Greg Knuckles has written about this a bit more extensively. I always seem to every fucking podcast I ever have, I refer to Greg Knuckles. Just don't even bother having me on. Just have Greg on instead. <laughs> so uh, it, there is some good reason to believe that really homeostatically disruptive single sessions that generate a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness, really disrupt things, are the best way to get satellite cell proliferation. So the best way to get satellite cells attracted to the main myofiber and to actually have an expansion of the myonuclear domain. Because regular hypertrophy probably doesn't require that. But that runs its course after you, you know, you have a nucleus and you have all the muscle that surrounds it and the muscle grows, grows, grows. And sooner or later, the nucleus can't really talk to the rest of the muscle, so it stops growing. So you need to add nuclei from satellite cells so they can get, continue to get bigger. Uh, that, that whole addition, that conventional hypertrophy, that, you know, may not require, it just probably requires a certain amount of weekly volume close to your MRV. I mean, each session doesn't probably necessarily need to be super disruptive, but for uh, probably for ascending to the next level of getting nuclei to add in, I think it's probably a good idea uh, to, to train really hard every now and again. And uh, if you split your bench volume up enough, no session's really that overloading and your body kind of just goes, eh, benching happens all the time. I'm really used to it, whatever. So I think that in the short term, that, that kind of approach is fine. In the long term, I would say a, a slightly contracted training frequency, at least for periods of time, is a good idea. Now, nothing like a once a week, but I think twice a week, three times a week, so you can get really fucked up and recover. Uh, on the other hand, I'm really, really, really glad I'd be brought connective tissue health. Benching every day or doing chest every day means that if you have a nagging little micro tear in one of your tendons, not going to go well for you. You're going to continue to aggravate, 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 aggravate. And if you're strong enough, it's going to fuck you over really quick, which is why people who advocate for really high frequency training, almost none of them are very strong. You get strong enough, you start benching 200 kilos. I, I, do you know one person that benches 200 kilos for max and, and does a pressing movement every day? Because I, cause I don't know a single one. Why? I mean, Olympic weightlifters are, are all, you know, a bunch of them are that strong in other lifts, and they do all, all kinds of lifts every day. But it's the nature of the very, you know, just the same muscle groups getting hit every single day in the same way, probably not a good idea when you get really strong. So I would say there are ways around it. You could probably do pushing every day. You might be able to do uh, Monday is a, more of a flat pressing and chest oriented push. Tuesday would be more of an incline pressing and triceps oriented push. And if you, uh, and you alternate those day, 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 that's better. But generally speaking, I think that from fatigue management, especially chronic injury, a lower training frequency is probably a good idea. 
because like if, if you go to one day a week of training, fuck, you could probably get injured every week and still recover for next week because it's such, such a long <laughs> interval, right? Now that's a really stupid way to train because you don't grow muscle for that long, right? You just use most of the week to recover instead of grow. There is probably a middle ground most of the time. So I think extreme uh, perspectives on frequency suffer from the idea that most people won't be able to survive them. And again, reference to Greg Knuckles, he's got this whole, you know, Bulgarian manual or, or whatever that he wrote or just to be a high frequency training. And so part of, pretty much the first thing in it is like, don't ever train like this for extended periods of time. Six to eight weeks, high frequency, and then you're going to get fucking beat up and you're not going to be able to keep going. So go back to normal frequency so you can heal up so that you can do high frequency later. I think that's a very good approach. The I think the, the, the big problem came several years ago when people just squat every day and all this stuff. People like high frequency training is how you train all the time. Good luck. You get strong enough, you're going to start to get hurt. Right. Although, again, and it might be, again, a shallow response, that's why I'm bringing it up because I'm, I'm curious what you will say, but, but proponents of, of high-frequency training will say to that that it is because you don't take into account volume. So you don't equate volume between the two groups. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm equating volume. Uh, my entire discussion is based on equating volume. I'm, you know, I, I've been an exercise researcher for a long time. I don't even know how to have a discussion without equated volume. <laughs> so I, even, if vol even if volume is equated, frequency has some unique characteristics uh there is such a thing as too much frequency for the best outcomes in the long term and there's definitely such a thing as too little frequency if i had to train someone with either very much frequency or very little i'd probably err on the side of very much but you know some of the biggest people in the world as a matter of fact almost all of them train pretty low frequency we can't just say they're wrong because they're still bigger than all of us. And there are a lot of times people have been doing stuff for a long time. It's because it actually works really well. So, uh, you know, it's uh, high frequency proponents have the uh, kind of the, the backstop is that very few people actually do high frequency training that are any good. And that is an argument. It is definitely an argument because the science is largely equivocal on many of these things. And now we have to look to the real world. People say, well, it's all about squatting every day. Who the fuck is squatting every day that's strong? There's like two guys, right? Everyone else doesn't do it. A bunch of people have tried and got hurt, I've seen it myself. So definitely some considerations, even for volume equated. Now, now that being said, a lot of people make really stupid comparisons to high-frequency training. You'll say, hey, man, so you bench once a week. And be like, yeah, I do chest once a week. Why don't you do it twice a week? They'd be like, I'll never be able to recover from that. And what I don't mean is that you just double your workout. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. have to cut your workout in half and then spread it out. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. So there's definitely some critiques about high-frequency training that just completely obviate that. But I do think it's important to note that, yeah, even volume equated, uh, super high-frequency runs into some real-world problems every now and again. Great, great, great response. Um, now, just, just to close up on the volume uh, slash training topic, um, I really like the because because it's easy to remember and I guess it's kind of dumb dumb dummy fool or dummy proof. But where does the the your training volume range recommendation come from? That um, I think six, sixteen to twenty five sets a week is is what you generally say. Yeah, where does that come from? So it comes from a, a combination of several factors. One, my own training. Two, uh, uh, having worked with man hundreds, if not more more than hundreds of clients from all walks of life over the past 10 years or something and a reading of the literature. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times the literature until recently has been very, very scant on the matter. So we have to do more of what we've kind of seen going on. But recently, I think you've probably seen the, the Schoenfeld review that came out. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Or sorry, that, uh, that is, so uh, they've had a couple of really good studies and some reviews and, and it looks like, man, they're, they haven't found a top end. <laughs> and they've, they've gone up to as many as 10, 10 sets per week, 10 working sets per week. Yeah, and yeah. the people who trained with a couple working sets per week, the guys who trained with more than that, double that group, pretty much double. The guys who trained even double that group, pretty much double. And you're like, holy shit. So, you know, based on how, you know, these sort of, you know, curves of adaptation or curves of difference work in the physiological systems, you know, if you said that, okay, so 10 is the most they found for growth, based on the way it went from like five to 10, it would be very doubtful that it was 12 sets that is the max for growth, right? <laughs> because I mean, it just went like, wah, wah, and it's probably not like, mm, that's it, <laughs> right? It yeah, probably goes yeah. mm, like that. No, is it 30 sets? 
that's where my personal experience and experience with coaching clients, I've tried 30 sets. I've had a lot of people try it. This is really not so much embarrassing, but it's offensive to admit the up coaching them by prescribing too much volume because I thought they could handle it. Mm-hmm. So when people say, oh man, you could do 30 sets a week, like, no, you fucking can't. One out of every people too, but most people will die. Like I, I haven't ended anyone's career, but I've come pretty close, okay, uh, including my own. Um, so, uh, and, and on the other side, uh, there's, there's this group of people who are scientifically minded and uh, they tend to be minimalists for some reason in their, in their philosophies. And, and, and they say things like, you know, do the, do the least you can to progress, which is actually almost a completely meaningless concept. Why would you want to do the most you can to, to progress the most? I have no idea. You know, you spend so much time in the gym, might as well get good at it. But, um, you know, they'll say things like, you know, 20, 20 sets is too much. It's too high. Maybe they just have really shitty genetics or something, but I've very rarely met someone who can't do at least 15 working sets per muscle group per week and get great results. You know what I mean? It's just, just it, I think a lot of the people that say these kinds of things are really out of touch with a normal gym population. You got bros doing double fat. They're still alive, right? And are we really going to say that they need to be cutting their volume by 70%? I mean, it sounds like it's insane, right? And it's funny because a lot of people that say that they tend to be smaller individuals and more slow twitch. They can themselves recover from tons and tons of volume. Now, that's where I got that recommendation. A lot of people took the, you know, the number 20 and ran with it. And that's it was great as a general rule. But what I would say is experiment with it and start low. I think everyone's assumption before they get into serious training or if they're just fucking around and now they finally wanted to make it more scientific, start with 15 sets per week or, or start working away to 15. If you're getting great results, great. Next mesocycle, try, try to work up to 17. That means, you know, week one, 13, then 14, 15, 16, right? Add a set or two every week and then deload. And you get up to 17, you say, maybe you're not super beat up and you got even better results. Try to go up to 19 or something like that. Does that make sense? Uh, don't just assume that 20 is your number because for me, a variety of muscle groups I have, 20 is not even close. But my hamstrings, like it's like 10 or 12, maybe sets per week. If I tried 15 sets per week for hamstrings, I wouldn't walk again and I just fucking probably just blow them off the bone or shrink. On the other hand, for biceps, if I did 12 sets of biceps a week, I wouldn't feel a fucking thing. And it's just different people have different muscle architecture. I've met people with really big biceps who seem to be very in tune with how they work and also the biceps probably more fast twitch and their penation angle is arranged a little differently. They get sore quick from just bicep curls and they can't handle that much volume, but their biceps get huge, right? And I have really big hamstrings, but they can't handle a whole lot of volume. So another thing people make is they make this like value judgment, this this moral judgment, like I should be able to handle 30 sets and handle heat with your MRV is your MRV and there's, you can get better nutrition. You can get more intelligent training that will improve your MRV. But other than that, there's no reason to try to do more volume, even when you know it's not good for you. Does that make sense? So a lot of people say, Oh, you know, 20 reps, like or 20 sets a week, it may not be 20. And, and for the other people who say, Oh, it's 20 sets, but I feel like I could survive more, do more because some people, I'm sorry, good news, bad news. If you really like working out, some people, their MRV is like 28 sets on average. They just have to spend a lot more time in the gym. But your recovery is amazing, right? So that's great. Uh, and, and some of those people don't like to work out. They'll never have very good results. you know. And on the other hand, there's people that really love to train, but they have really low MRVs because they're maybe very fast, which very big, very strong. And uh, they, they can't really train that much more. Like, for example, I have an interesting problem. My pecs are enormous in like, I swear to God, they're like 90, 10 fast, which or something like that. Uh, I cramp up doing pushups, <laughs> but uh, my pecs, I can, I, I need so little work on my pecs. I love training my pecs, but I just, I don't do that much pack work because much more than 12 or 14 sets per week and, and I'm toast and it's just worse for me. So your MRV is what it is. You can try to improve it, but I wouldn't relate it to the ego at all. It's like, Oh, I should be able to survive more. There's no such thing you should be able to, all you can do is your best. Right. right, and and um, so when when you look at set set volume the the way you do, I, I assume you don't really concern yourself with weekly tonnage per se. So do you uh, rec- like the rep ranges? Do you determine them out of uh, percentages of one RM, or how do you like to uh, tailor those? That's that's a fine way. I mean, I determine my rep ranges because I keep a historical uh, log of what I do. I know what I did previously, what reps I got, and I have a, a rep target, so I know what, uh, like how much weight to put on the bar. 
for other people just starting out, a percent of one RM is a good idea. Right, right. And and there is there a good rule of thumb, or is that um, very individual? Most of your hypertrophy training should be done between sixty and eighty percent of your one RM. If you do much more than eighty uh, percent of your one RM, it's, it's the intensity is so high that your volume is going to have to be lower in order for you to recover. So now you're just kind of showing off and lifting heavy weights, but it's not conducive to the kind of volume that you need to maximize hypertrophy. On the other hand, if you, uh, let's say, go with less than 60% of your arm, then you could do a ton of volume, but because intensity is critical to the stimulation of hypertrophy in most cases, then you end up having a thing where you're doing a whole lot of sets and reps, but not much is happening per each set of reps. So, you know, if we really thought volume was the only factor for hypertrophy and intensity wasn't related at all, endurance athletes should have the biggest legs ever, right? <laughs> because they get a ton of volume. So you've got to go somewhat heavy. Anything above 60% 1RM is really starting to get there. Anything much above 80, 85 is way too heavy. You won't be able to survive that kind of volume. Uh, so on average, it should be between 60 and 80. And, and when and where, it's all phase dependent, fiber type dependent, and a bunch of other things. Right. All right. Fantastic. Just to close off on this uh, thing, uh, and, and it's, a, I guess, a selfish question, but also I'm sure a lot of people wondering about this. For your delts, do you look at each individual head or just delts as a, as a whole? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think you absolutely have to look at it as each individual head. The delts do not function as a unified muscle. It's absurd. I think a, a shoulder day in some sense is kind of weird. I've never done a shoulder day in my life. Uh, you can do a shoulder day, but you'd have to really split up your, uh, you'd have to really split up your training within that. You'd have to be doing exercises that are very independent from one another. So for example, if you warm up for upright rows, you have to do shoulder presses. You have to warm up all the way through again, because it's, you know, involving your triceps, front delts, something that really wasn't even touched in upright rows. So um, I think that, you know, you distinctly have to have rear delt emphasis, side delt emphasis, and front delt emphasis in your training to make sure you cover all bases. And it's funny, like, uh, there was for a long time a lot of bodybuilders still complaining that their rear delt development sucks. And you'd look at the routine that they publish in Flex Magazine or something, and it was like front raises, shoulder presses, side laterals, and then rear laterals on a machine. You're just like... So you use the lightest rear lateral exercise you can find, the easiest one. You put it at the very end of your workout, and you're surprised that your rear delts are lagging, right? So for me personally, I barely even train my front delts. Uh, I do them with a vertical pressing day. I don't ever isolate them because I've, I've, there's very few people in who front delts are the lagging part of their shoulder. Yeah, yeah. But I have an entire you know, four times a week I dedicate for rear and medial delts. Because if they're big, you have huge delts. Obviously, just as, as with training, you have to per periodize your nutrition somewhat uh, to, again, to, to, to manage fatigue, to keep your body healthy. What do you think is a good kind of uh, split up for the, the, the year or your training season in terms of being in a surplus maintenance and, and deficit phase in relation to your training periodization? So I think on average... What you want to do is have most of your either cutting or massing, and then in between your masses and cuts, you probably want to do an endurance phase that's shorter. So I usually say about three months of massing, three months of cutting, and uh, in between those two. So three months of massing, one month of maintenance, three months of cutting, and then you repeat the process. Okay, so, so it's interesting, yeah, because many people um, like to push the idea that you should spend, I don't know, two to three times as much time in messing than, than in a, being in a deficit. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it you depends, know, it depends on, on how, 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 how good a good you can be. If you were competing in bodybuilding, you have to spend a long time in a deficit. If you're just, if you're just massing and cutting to get, to get bigger, bigger, then you probably can spend only about two-thirds as long cutting as you do massing. But... But sometimes, sometimes fat accumulates, accumulates too much, and then you have to cut for longer, longer. Awesome, amazing. Uh, so again, we we covered some amazing golden nuggets in training and nutrition, and and just my very very last question to you, 
just to pick your brain on this, what, you're, you, you're, you've been in this field for a long time now, and what would you say is that one distinguishing trait or common denominator amongst professionals in the space that you think is a very common thing amongst people who just make it big and earn a great reputation for themselves in this arena? You gotta be pretty smart. You gotta be intellectually honest. Uh, you have to admit when you don't know stuff and the stuff that you do know, you have to present as honestly, as logically and as clearly as you can. As a lot of people start talking about chemical pathways, molecular, molecular, that, and it gets really out of hand and no one has any idea what they're talking about. So I think you try to put complicated concepts simply, try to understand them so well that you can put them simply and then do your best. And when people ask you about them, answer the questions in a clear way. If you can't answer them, then say, I don't know. And then everyone learns best uh, as opposed to posturing and saying, you know, everything and all this other stuff. Awesome. All right. Then, uh, well, Mike, th thanks a lot. Uh, you shared some amazing golden nuggets. And it's unfortunate that we have to wrap it up abruptly. But please tell us where can people find you and uh, your availability. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. Uh, Facebook, Mike Israel, it's a public account. So come have fun, ask me questions, post troll memes. Uh, at RP Dr. Mike on Instagram, uh, mostly just pictures and stuff. It was a stupid comment. It's all pictures. It's Instagram. Uh, there's not, not much, not much training knowledge there. And then, um, at, uh, RP strength and that's a Renaissance periodization, the company that I work for and that's on Instagram and then Facebook Renaissance periodization and then, uh, on, on the internet. Regular internet that no one uses anymore. Uh, it's So check that out. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, interesting, isn't it? I think if I had to summarize my biggest takeaways from this podcast, it would be finding the right balance between dedication and discipline when you're in the gym. So, yes, wanting to push and push and push in the gym speaks of dedication holding back because you know that you can only go balls out for so long before you get hurt, that speaks of discipline. And there I mean a lot of discipline. So yes, for one, you need to have the dedication and desire to better yourself. But when it comes to working out, at least half of that has to go into doing your planning and programming properly and perfecting your technique. It's craftsmanship for real. For your first year of training, when you're not even strong enough to hurt yourself, you can go to the gym and let yourself be influenced by your emotions somewhat. But as you get stronger and more advanced, you need to adapt the pro mindset. And by pro, I mean you are driven by knowing what you have to do. You are systematic and you know when to ignore your emotions, even if your emotions tell you to put another plate on the bar. Also, it's interesting how Dr. Mike pointed out how overloading just by itself always involves the risk of injury. So it's not necessarily that your form breaks down or you're severely overreached and fatigued, but by simply pushing slightly harder than you did before, just you just put your joints and tissues at a higher risk of injury. So that is an argument by itself to actually not try to overload all the time, do it less frequently and even take pre-planned deloads even if you feel like you could go on for longer. Now, is that right? Or would auto-regulation just by itself be sufficient? Um, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know that. At some point, I would love to make a roundtable discussion where I would involve people who argue otherwise and see the outcome. But for now, it's worth seriously consider all of this. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I believe Dr. Mike got us into some really cool insights which can definitely help a lot of people so if you enjoy this please subscribe i'll soon have if all goes well query probes on who is a colleague of joe klemzewski or dr joe as many of you know him at dietdoc.com and we will talk a lot of cool stuff about eating disorders and healthy mindset around eating and all of that good stuff so see you all next time